the rest of the C-suite, it's kind of like your extended family and, and your family in the workplace. And, and because together you need to make such important decisions for the business. And to make the best business decisions possible, you, you really need everyone on the team to trust each other. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about an upcoming podcast episode I'm very excited about. Our friends at 929 will be releasing an amazing episode next week. Host Ishan will be joined by the inspiring Mo Gowda, the former chief business officer for Google X, entrepreneur and author. And he will be talking about how being more empathetic allowed him to succeed. We had the pleasure of having Mo on the 40 Minute Mental podcast in series five. So I know his feature on 929 will be one you don't want to miss. To listen to the episode, head over to Apple, Spotify, or any major podcast platform. In today's 40 Minute Mental episode, I speak to Cleo Sham, who has had a stellar career as a tech executive at Uber and Spotterhome before moving into investing as a partner at Stride VC. They have backed rocket ship scale-ups like WeGift, Impala, and the Unicorn Kazoo. Clio is widely regarded as one of the best scale-up operators around. And having recently pivoted into VC, I'm sure many founders will get to benefit from her incredible expertise over the years ahead. Clio is also a JBM SOS board advisor, so I've benefited hugely from her insights and advice over the years and knew she would be an awesome guest, and she definitely didn't disappoint. In today's episode, Cleo shares candid insights from her time at Uber, which involved overseeing the first Uber city in the world to record one million trips in a week. We also discuss how she made the switch from being an operator to a VC investor, and hear her top tips for anyone looking to make a similar move. This episode is filled to the brim with wise mentorship, and fascinating anecdotes from behind the scenes of successful scale-ups and VCs. So whether you're an operator looking to become an investor, an aspiring COO, or a founder about to dive into an investment round, you don't want to miss out on Cleo's brilliant advice in this episode. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy these next 40 minutes with the incredible Cleo Sham. Cleo, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. We always start this with some quick fire questions. So are you game and ready for those? Yes, uh, thanks for having me, James. Super excited to be here. And yes, I'm ready. Awesome, right, we've got 30 seconds. Finish these sentences. First up, when I was younger, I always wanted to be... A professional tennis player. Ah, oh, that's a great answer. And we are recording this just as Emma Raducanu has just got into the US Open final. So that's very timely. My first job was? Um, I wanted to make some extra money in the summer. So I started flyering my building and, and I was teaching tennis uh, to the kids in my building when I was in my teens. Awesome. I see the, t- the tennis theme here, <laughs> uh, but clearly clearly an entrepreneurial streak from, from early on. When starting my career, I wish I'd have known. I wish I'd known that it wasn't going to be a straight path. I had no idea. And that is uh, very, very true. I, I, I like the term squiggly career, which uh, is, uh, is another great podcast. And that, I think it's very apt because uh, careers aren't often linear, are they? I'm most energized at work when I'm... When I'm having a problem-solving discussion with one of the founders in our portfolio, I think that's what really energizes me. Fantastic. 
And finally, can you share something we couldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from? This is not really a quick fire question, I have to say. But in my second role at Uber, when I was um, in Amsterdam, I went through some tough times uh, trying to orchestrate and you know, implement some initiatives that were not popular with the existing leadership, but were good for the business. For the 45 countries that we're operating in, moving activities from local teams to central and then automating them was quite jarring for such a entrepreneurial and decentralized org. So um, I just moved to Amsterdam. You know, I don't think at that point I built trust with the organization, I had not put enough thought about how to communicate that to everybody and and how to actually have those conversations. And so outside of my immediate function, I I think you know, it caused quite a bit of discomfort. And I think in that experience, I learned quite a bit about empathy and just communicating more thoughtfully. That's a great example. Thank you, Cleo. Well, I think we've already we've already got an interesting glimpse into your early life and just a, a little bit about your, your career. We touched upon Uber, which we'll come back to. But you have had such a varied career. You've done banking, done consulting, angel investing. You've worked in scale-ups as a COO, and now you're in VC. So I'd love to dig into your career and explore the kind of driving forces behind it. I think it's clear to see from your CV that even as early as your uni days, you covered a lot of ground. You did a triple major in economics, managerial studies in sport management at Rice University. Was it always the plan to have this varied career? Um, what did you have in mind when you started off? Yeah, I have to say I didn't really have a super clear idea in mind when I started. But what I knew as a kid, as I mentioned with tennis, was I love sports. I love playing tennis. I played for the university. And then at some point, I think um, even before uni, I realized I wasn't going to become a professional tennis player. So I didn't really have a fixed plan or, or vision since that dream was sort of gone. But as a kid, I, I was always saving pocket money to go buy books and was always drawn to the autobiography section in the bookshops. I was inspired by uh, entrepreneurs and you know their stories and basically people who, who go through the struggle to build something from scratch and build something big out of nothing. So I was curious you know, because neither of my parents were from the business world. My dad was a doctor. My, da- my mom was a civil servant. And so at uni, I think taking on these majors was really a way to get myself up to speed and understand how the business world worked and how to look at businesses. And at the same time, sort of combine that with the sporting world that I was really curious about. That's awesome. There's a lot of similarities with myself. My dad played professional cricket before he went into teaching. I always thought I'd wanted to become a professional sportsman. I was never good enough. But I think there's something there's something about doing sport as a youngster that, that translates. And I, similarly to you, loved reading about entrepreneurs. And even though no one in my family is in business, that sort of sparked the initial inspiration for me as well, I think. I think we see now especially given what we do there's a lot more variation in in careers which i think is a really good thing just like yours so how did you navigate the the different changes you've made from industries to sectors and was there one particular job or industry that you found harder than the others yeah i think all of them were quite hard to be honest i think um, i made a couple of switches as you mentioned from consulting to starting three of my own companies then to proprietary trading and then Uber. And all of them were, were quite different. But I think you know, what made me change paths along the way was really learning about myself and, and what I enjoyed and what I was good at. And then just following my curiosity and you know, figuring out what I would find most meaningful and, and most challenging as a next step. Like for me, the biggest priority was always to learn. 
I wasn't very outcome driven. So it was really all about the journey and all about, you know, what would be the most challenging and exciting next step. And so I just followed that. Really. I love that. I think that curiosity to learn and just kind of following your your interests and your passions is is a great way to kind of uh, to, to to be. I think, and we often find them that the people that are most fulfilled in their careers are the ones that kind of go after that path. It doesn't mean it's easy, and clearly, you've picked some particularly challenging gigs along the way, from starting your own business to working in banking and and now uh, investing. But um, it's clearly worked given given the successful career you've had. And um, would you say you're naturally a fast learner? And how did you get to grips with all these different roles and subject matters and industries? Yeah, I don't know if I'm naturally fast, but I think I was definitely very enthusiastic. And so that leads you to spend a lot of your free time, you know, just reading up and, and digging into things, right? I spend a lot of time like reading books, talking to people and just, I think, investing a lot of time and just constantly trying to apply it in my day to day. Yeah, I think what helped was really trying to like get to the bottom of things, look at things quite simply, you know, get into the nitty gritty and then trying to apply it. Well, I, I wanted to cover a bit of your stint in at Uber because I, I know that was an, a very, very successful, but also very full on uh, four year period where you oversaw the first Uber city in the world to hit one million trips in a week uh, and you became director of ops for Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I think you alluded to some of the, the challenging aspects of that job. You were part of that hyper growth experience at Uber. What, what were some of your personal highlights and learnings from that time? Yeah, um, at Uber, I probably think of the Uber China chapter first. And that was a crazy period of exponential growth period, right? Crazy product market fit, huge market. And we were pretty much building the business from scratch. And so at that time, you know, if a we had a week that, you know, we grew less than 10%. It was called a slow week. And we had a tiny team of three people that, you know, we only built it up to seven when we had a million trips per week. So we were literally building the plane while flying it. So I'd always look back at that chapter as being a very meaningful one, mostly because, you know, the amazing teams that came together, not only in China, but eventually also in Amsterdam. The teams um, were, you know, very diverse in experience and background but all super strong, you know, really aligned culturally and, and in how we worked. And so there was always a great vibe on the team, like almost like a second family or a sports team that was very well coordinated and didn't even need to talk to each other. You know, we just knew, knew how to work with each other. I think everyone was um, bringing their creativity and, and ideas and leveraged each other and just executed very well. And so that was always you know, a, a good memory for me. And then you tend to remember the most crazy stories and moments, right? There, there are lots of them, especially in the China chapter where we, we would have like a fire per week, whether it's like an accident that happened on the platform or whether it's being you know, chased by fraud driver, fraudulent drivers who are trying to hunt you down or having the office get, get raided by, by the police. You know, these were all really stressful moments at the time, but you look back and they're the things that you remember, right? Yeah. How did you cope with that? That's very stressful. Yeah, I have to say I didn't sleep much, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> but you're, I felt like, you know, it was a constant, I was just fueled by adrenaline all the time. Right? It obviously helped to have a great team, like going through all of it together. And it was just like, again, like building the plane while flying and you're, you're building the business during the day and then at night you're handling the crises. It's, uh, I, I mean, rather you than me, but <laughs> I mean, that's why you've been so successful as, as an operator. And in terms of kind of some of those lessons learned, I guess particularly interested in, from a leadership perspective, you, you were able to bring together 
very high performing people and teams and clearly it was a brilliant product but is there any is there anything particularly you learned about being a leader from that that time yeah there were so many things i think being in a high growth environment in general right i think i think building teams and recruitment that's a quite a separate topic and a very large topic but in in that environment i think just moving quickly is is key i think like Whenever we executed things or made a decision, we would execute them on the same day. We wouldn't wait for things to happen. And we were conscious about building the foundations and, and the infrastructure that would scale with the business while st still trying to cope with, um, with the stresses that the, that the increasing scale placed uh, on the existing team. We were really focused on hiring the best people we could, as, as you mentioned. Um, we never took shortcuts when it came to hiring, very rigorous processes. And, and hiring was always a top priority, regardless of how busy we were operationally. The team is really everything. And, and we always needed people yesterday. We were so stretched, but, you know, we never traded off on quality. I think, you know, the, the saying of hiring slow and firing fast still applies, regardless of how, how quickly, you know, things were moving. Uh, and, and that was something I, I really i am glad that we held on to, um, because ultimately that, that's what scales, right? Absolutely. I, people are everything. And I guess we, we have a lot of mutual friends from the Uber alumni who are all exceptional people, but I, I know how important hiring was to them and, and, and getting it right. And I think it, it is better to, to take your time and, and ensure you're, you're getting it right. And that's something I've learned from, from my own experience with JBM when things haven't gone so well. And uh, um, it's often because you've you're, you're rushing it because you're stressed and you, you, there's, there's, you're losing out on work, but it's often very costly if you get it wrong. I, I wanted to talk about COOs because as, uh, as you all know very well, uh, we have lots of listeners, lots of candidates who want to advance their ops careers. Many want to become like you, a, a COO one day. From your experience at Uber and then at Spotter Home where you were COO, what, what are some of the key traits and characteristics that make a really good COO? Yeah, so the COO role, I guess, as a lot of people know, it's very multifaceted. Right? There's operations, there's leadership, there's a lot of cross-functional work involved, there's a lot of team building involved, processes as well, and customers. And so it's a, it's a fantastic role. And when I looked at people who were great in the role, uh, I realized a few things. Right? So great leaders, they, they listen and they don't pretend to have all the answers. I think there's just openness to what you don't know and, and you know, being open with the organization about it and, and exploring together and constantly learning. And all the great leaders I've seen are amazing at assessing and attracting talent. So being a talent magnet is, is critical. And, and then there's also the trust and enablement and empowerment that you give to your teams, letting people bring their best selves to work. So once you've brought great people on board, if you give them the freedom to invent and to execute, uh, regardless of where they are in the org, you know, whether they're junior or, or experienced doesn't really matter. I think that really unleashes the power of the team. And that really, you know, brings me back to the early Uber days when, when we felt like everyone was empowered to build their, their city as a startup. And the pace of innovation you get is, is incredible out of that. I think great COOs are rigorous and know the metrics inside out. They know which levers to pull and, and they're, they're very close to the numbers. I think that's, uh, that's a basic requirement. And uh, given the role is so cross-functional, I think you need to be able to lead outside of your own org. Uh, so there are functions that don't necessarily report to the COO, but you work with finance, you work with tech, you know, GNA, marketing, and being able to influence those and get everyone on the same page is super important. 
and then CROs are, I think, uh, they need to be customer centric. We we learned a lot of that um, during our time at Uber, but also in Spot Home and how we we handled every customer interaction. The customer always comes first, uh, and and also in in you know understanding the marketplace and and how the business functions. Um, being able to roll up your sleeves and take time to understand the frontline work uh, is really important. So. At Uber, that meant actually being a driver for a day or two or or delivering food for, for a day or two. And we did that on a regular basis. Yeah, we had groups of people across the organization, different functions, all doing it because it's so important to understand your end user and your customer. And then you're just constantly you know, dog fooding your, your own product. Uh, and that's the best way to get feedback and figure out how to improve. That's yeah. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't realised that. And you do hear of stories of founders still do you know being being really close to the customer, but I didn't realise actually driving the cars and delivering the food. So that's that's fantastic. We do talk to a lot of COOs uh, in our COO, obviously in, in the day job, but also through our COO secret series. And one sort of common piece of advice that gets shared is the importance of building that great relationship with the CEO and the rest of the C-suite. Do you agree with that? And, and why would you, if so, why is that such an important part of the role? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think um, the COO and CEO are basically work hand in hand, right? It's almost like a like a marriage or, you know, you the COO and, and the rest of the C-suite, it's kind of like your extended family and, and your family in the workplace. And, and because together you need to make such important decisions for the business, and to make the best business um, decisions possible, you you really need everyone on the team to trust each other. So I think trust is a is a really important foundation. Great teams are built on on trust, and that you know includes having personal relationships with everybody on the team. So you understand, you know, if your CEO is having a rough patch or or appear on in, in the C suite, you're struggling with something personally, you know how to step in and, and fill the gaps. But back to decision making, I think if everyone feels safe and trusts each other in the environment, then they can be very open and honest about sort of any blind spots that we think we might have as a team or any any concerns that we might have going into a big decision and ultimately be more rigorous about making those decisions, but also be on the same page. And being on the same page is important because that also becomes a model for the rest of the organization. Teams need to be aligned at all levels, but then the tone is set at the top. So I think that's that's critical and that starts with the with the C-level team. That's great advice. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of leaders creating psychological safety for their teams. But I guess it's equally important that when you've got a CEO and a founder hiring a COO, that there's also that psychological safety for that COO to actually execute on the CEO strategy and, and have the, I guess, the ability to push back and challenge and, uh, you know, have a say. And I think that's, I think when we see the best CEO and COO relationships, it is very, you know, it is like yin and yang, and they are able to play to each other's strengths and have a really sort of mutually respectable uh, relationship. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. When you look back at your first few weeks in as director of ops at, at Uber or COO at Spot Home, what do you wish you'd have known? And do you have any advice for our listeners that are maybe about to start their first COO role or or hoping that will be their their next move? Yeah, sure. I think um, having an understanding of the historical context of the organization is super important. I think you can do a certain amount of homework in your interview process or when you do your diligence before taking on the role. Um, but there's always more, uh, and, and it's important to invest the time to really, to really learn all of it, and you know, spending time with the people, and really digging in. Um, and I think it's 
then also important to expect that there's going to be things that are broken that need to be fixed in the foundations of the business because these are high growth businesses and you know again the plane was built while flying it and so you expect that there are things to be fixed and and there is always going to be this tension while you know while you're trying to scale the business and accelerate growth that you you're going to have to fix a lot of things along the way as well and i think in in general if somebody is about to start their CEO role i, I think um it's probably a bit of a nerve-wracking sort of moment or step but knowing that there's never a right or wrong answer is important but the key i think is really just to be decisive and and not procrastinate or sit on you know or avoid difficult decisions just being decisive actually brings a lot of clarity to everyone else on the teams and enables you to move forward otherwise i think yeah it's it's a journey right i think um leadership uh is always a journey so honing your skills and leadership style to find your your own style and one that is really authentic to who you are um is is always critical great thank you thanks so much kia we're going to talk a bit about VC now because you successfully pivoted out of operations to becoming a venture capitalist and I know that's something a lot of our listeners are very excited by and interested by. I'd love to find out a bit more about how you made that switch and also delve into your experience of investing. So to start off, what attracted you to VC in the first place and how did you know it was the right time in your career to make that that switch? It wasn't an obvious choice and it wasn't something I always aspired to do but again you know looking at back at my career and how how the decisions were made over time I think understanding yourself like is the the piece that came first so first I always loved investing at first with with stocks you know in my teenage years I I read a lot of books by value investors like Benjamin Graham um Warren Buffett Joel Greenblatt and then started you know investing in stocks and and I started the investment club at uni so I knew that I really liked uh, investing but it was in stocks and I I did a stint in uh, at the prop desk at Merrill Lynch which was the bank's internal hedge fund uh, early in my career and so I also at the same time really liked building right so I started three companies earlier in my career I really loved operating at Uber and also at Spotahome uh, and and then during that period I was exposed to startups and and started angel investing it almost felt like something that I, that I just needed to do. That was about 5 years ago when I started building my my angel portfolio. And after investing in about 60 companies personally and spending more time with founders, I I realized VC could potentially be a great way to combine, you know, my two passions of building companies and also investing. Um so that was really what led me to to think about VC and and angel investing was a way to test it out, at least test out whether I I would enjoy it or not. And I I've always felt like it would be it'd be very challenging and and a great way to learn. So there wasn't really a right time. I thought about it, you know, a couple of years ago as well, but in the end just followed my gut and uh, and making this last decision. I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond. in eight countries so far and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40 minute mental episode with their co-founder and CEO Ham Serenjoji. And have there been any specific skills from your career as a COO and operator that have come in handy uh, now that you've made the switch to VC? Sure yeah probably a, a few I think first is having empathy with founders uh, because I had you know started a couple of my own companies before and also worked in scale ups 
and worked closely with CEOs in the, in the past. I think just understanding how hard it is to build is a great sort of foundation. And then, you know, as an operator, you tend to think about how a company tangibly scales in terms of action, you know, execution, and, and what the team would look like. And so that applies quite well to VCs when, when you look at businesses, but also when you work with their portfolio companies. And then understanding, I think, what good looks like. I think coming from Uber, I was fortunate enough to see a lot of things done well. And so you know, at, at the time, we took a lot of it for granted in terms of like how things were done or, or the action-oriented culture or the amount of data we were able to see and the quality of, of you know, the work in general. But having seen it, I think it, it sets a, a good bar. And, and then it's really helpful when it comes to you know, bringing insights to founders and, and, and assessing what good looks like. Yeah, I can really see how valuable your experience can be. And I think also that not just as a, as a COO and operator, but also that, that founder experience you have, I guess that empathy with founders is maybe something that VCs historically may have been accused of not, not understanding as much. So I can really see the value of, of what you bring. Has anything surprised you in your first few months in VC that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I guess there are a few areas and some of them you, you would sort of instinctively expect uh, but then but then you don't really know like what it feels like until you step into it right so the the space i think is just extremely dynamic there's so much going on and then in so many different you know verticals right very dynamic space um it's at the same time really opaque still even though it's it's definitely been been developing at a, at a quick pace in terms of the vc industry in europe in general and it's collaborative i think um that part has been has been a very nice, like positive surprise. The community has been really welcoming and generous. It's been, you know, very easy meeting people, and and um, I think there's a lot of sort of generosity around willingness to help. And so I, I think that's really nice about about the industry. That's great, yeah, and, and I've definitely seen that. I, I think investing isn't always uh, appreciated for some of those things, but I, the yeah, my experience has always been super positive, and and uh, it's great to to see you really enjoying and thriving in the industry. We should probably talk about where you are. So you're a partner at, at Stride VC. It's an incredibly well-respected firm. Can you tell us a bit about Stride for those that don't know and what attracted you to the company? Sure. Stride is um, a seed fund primarily, but we invest across stages, pre-seed to series A. We are generalists, uh, so we are not strict about, about themes that we invest across. Uh, but what's special about Stride and what attracted me to the role is, is really that it's born out of a appreciation for operations and products. So there's a real operator mindset um, at Stride where we seek to be the operating partner of founders. And there's a real focus on the actual company building. That includes spending a lot of time on recruitment, helping to find and close great candidates, and also strategy uh, with founders who are about to make what we call the 10x decisions, like the really big, important strategic decisions that you make in the early days of a company. We also believe in the primacy of product um, and the power of great design and, and the ability of you know, that to transform the user experience. And, and these are all sort of things that I agree with personally. And then most importantly, I think there's a genuine intent in supporting founders. Uh, we think that you know we, the job is a privilege and that we need to earn our seat at the table. And we appreciate how hard it is to build a company which again is something I'm very much personally aligned with having, having tried to build companies myself. And as I mentioned before, we're non-thematic. Um, we believe that you know, it's important to have mental plasticity and 
and adaptability and being open to opportunities in non-obvious spaces. I think it's it's difficult because um, sometimes you know the, the opportunities are, are vast, right? And there's such a variety of things that that we look at day to day. Um, but we try to come in with you know with an open mind and you know, positive ignorance and assess opportunities from scratch and with a blank slate as much as we can, and, and really go off of first principles. I can imagine, given your intellectual curiosity, that that breadth is very appealing and exciting. So that that makes a lot of sense why you you would have chosen Stride. Yeah, and and I guess also an important thing to note is that Stride itself is a startup. Right? It's a boutique. Uh, so when I joined, we we're a team of four, and we're still building. We're building both Stride itself and, and the Stride team, just like the entrepreneurs that we're backing. So the operator and builder in me, you know, likes the opportunity to be able to build a firm besides investing and besides helping founders. And so that's also an exciting place to be, personally. I love that. Yeah, I can see. I can. See totally see why why it's such a perfect marriage there and i think um i also love the focus on talent i'm a little bit biased but i think if you if you double down on that and and helping the portfolio companies on what we hear regularly is their biggest challenge then you know again it can it can only add huge value so that's really that's awesome to hear you've obviously been a very successful angel investor uh, with over 60 startups in your portfolio and then you've become a, a vc investor at stride so what do you look for when you assess companies and founders that you're investing in and are there any red flags that that kind of put you off yeah, so personally, uh, I think everyone has their own mental frameworks when it comes to investing. So I'll, I'll share you know, the pieces that I care about. I think, first of all, um, you know, is this a great founder? And I, I think that's quite a broad generic term. But for me, I specifically look for people who, who grow and learn fast. And you can often you know, tell from looking at their trajectory in the past, whether they're humble, whether they're, they're self-aware, they're, are they hungry, are they resilient? You know, if they founded a company or worked at a scale-up before, then even better. Uh, but generally, the founder, I guess, the founder quality uh, piece matters a lot. And then, secondly, I think, you know, does the founder or the founding team bring unique insight about a problem or an opportunity that they're trying to address? And that again comes from conversations with the team, but also just digging into the space. And then, are they addressing a market that is inherently, you know, interesting? Is it big? Is it well positioned for the future? And I think a lot of investors talk about, you know, TAM being something that is easy to get wrong. It's also a bit of a trap to, to overly focus on nailing the addressable market size. So it's less about nailing the, the exact TAM, but it's kind of about whether the company has an opportunity to go into adjacent spaces or, you know, are there waves that they could ride um, that expands the market itself, right? That naturally changes the TAM. And so just understanding the dynamics there um, is really important beyond the TAM itself. Great. And and if there are founders listening to this, hoping to pitch to you down the line or, or other investors, because we know it's a difficult process, what pointers or advice would you give them? I, I really just like to have a very human and, and casual you know, conversation and, and not be overly formal and be able to dynamically just, just you know, have, a, have a good discussion about the business and also hear the story of the founder. So understanding you know why the founder cares about this problem what is what is his or her personal story and what led them to do this is is always really interesting and, and important so personal motivation right and then be able to explain the business in in a very simple language like imagine explaining the business to your grandmother and is it easy for somebody to understand how it would work and then 
the important part, I guess, for an investor is just understanding how the business would get really big, right? And how and why do you think this is going to get big and and why now? And then I guess advice in general would be just being careful and being a bit more strategic in choosing which funds you, you want to talk to and work with. Sometimes, you know, there's funds also proactively reach out to founders and it's and especially if they've heard good things about you or your company. So you could be flooded by inbounds, right? And and in those moments it's easy to be reactive. And it's a good problem to have, obviously. But being strategic about like how you select uh, the fund that you work with and the partner of the fund that you want to work with is important because it's going to be a multi-year partnership and, and journey, almost like a marriage, right? So so being careful about who you choose to put on your cap table and, and who you want to work with is is important. So on, on that point, um, getting founder references uh, is something I would always advise founders to do. So speak with a couple of founders that this fund has backed to understand, you know, whether they are delivering the value that they promise and uh, what, what are they like as partners and what can you really get from working with a fund. Right? So before you take money, I always advise getting references from founders in the portfolio. That's a really yeah, great, great advice. So hopefully anyone listening, raising will uh, will take heed um, and I'm sure be very grateful for that. Before we get to our, our wrap-up questions, Cleo, I just wanted to touch upon D and I, which is obviously a big topic and one we we discuss quite a lot on this podcast. The tech ecosystem, the the investing ecosystem, hasn't always had the the best um, reputations when it comes to this topic. So, what what more do you think can be done in tech to level the playing field? And what advice do you have for any women that are listening who want to build careers in in tech and VC? What would you say to them? I guess I'll start with just thinking about companies and and how how to build a diverse team uh, in, a, in a company sort of setting. If you think about sort of bringing people onto the on to the team in terms of the flow, like hiring and then retaining and developing, I'll start with hiring. I think that is a, a great place to start in that you start with the pipeline and uh, making sure that that has fair representation, uh, and a good balance of of um, majority and and underrepresented groups, um, and that might mean take a bit more time to build your list. But I remember at Uber we had discussed sort of allowing more time for the first round conversations just because you know there's data that that says women take a bit more time to warm up to the idea of switching companies and so dedicating a first say one to two weeks to have the first candidate chats with only female candidates could also help because then they can sort of mentally catch up to be on on more of an equal mental footing to say male candidates who who might be um willing to move a little bit uh faster. And so investing that extra time up front is a good way to to make this work. And we've seen it work in places that I worked before. So yeah, and then I think in the retention process, you know, you look at your team as they progress you know, through through their careers and, and get promoted. I think paying attention to the metrics uh, every time you have a promotion cycle is important. So you know, looking at the percentage of men versus women that you're looking to promote in a given cycle. And I say, and I highlight women as a group here because legally it's different. It's difficult to get data that goes any more granular than that. So in terms of like ethnicity or sexual orientation, it's just hard to have that data. So I just, I'm just saying women because it's easy to identify, legally speaking. So yeah, looking at the proportion that you're looking to promote in a given cycle, given cycle, and before you make the promotions, just check yourself and and see if there's a massive imbalance, and if so, why? It could be that the decisions are still correct, but it's good to at least have that sort of checking step. 
And then in, in general, as we're, you're looking to evolve in an existing organization, I think it's important to not set hard short-term numerical targets because that could really lead, lead to teams you know, overcorrecting or setting the wrong incentives. So for example, you could be disempowering the minority by by like promoting them very quickly without clear rationale. And then others then question, like, are they getting promoted because they're they're great performers or not? And that's actually shooting yourself in the foot. And the majority group can then be like, hey, I'm being treated unfairly, which is also, you know, quite toxic for the organization. Right. So so it could really hurt the credibility of your DNI efforts if you rush it. And then if you're yeah, if it's an established company, I think um for people who are already in the workforce and looking to progress, I think looking for uh, senior sponsorship and setting up programs where you have a senior sponsoring somebody who's not from a majority group could be helpful as well. So that you know you ensure that there's some visibility to the work that they're doing. And and to your second question around you know advice to women who are looking to build a career in tech in BC, I think just like meet people. I think meet people and use those conversations to research and really understand what what the work entails at, at a VC. It's really too easy to look at the role and the nature of work and sort of fantasize and romanticize about it and think that it's amazing. But you know, but actually like it's important to understand the good and the bad and the ugly. And you get that from conversations and and also you get it from doing. So I would encourage you know people to so sort of tinker, if you're looking to be an operator, try and start something. And if you're interested in VC, then start angel investing, even if it's small checks. And in general, again, with the VC community, don't hesitate in trying to reach out to people because I mean, people are more welcoming and generous than, than you think. So yeah, hopefully those, those are kind of practical. Yeah, thank you very much. That's, that's super helpful. I'm sure everyone will really appreciate that. We are sadly at the end. It's time for our wrap-up questions. And it would be... It wouldn't be right for me not to at least ask this question around mentorship because it is the 40-minute mentor. So do you have a mentor? And if so, have they helped you in your journey? Yeah, I don't have a, a fixed sort of long-term mentor per se, but throughout my career, I've had a lot of luck with working with amazing leaders and, and managers you know, who I, who I admired for different attributes, who were supportive of me or or who I look to for different strengths that they have, right? Some people are visionary, some are super inspiring, some are great leaders of big teams, some are great communicators, and then others might be, you know, founders who are exceptionally resilient. And so you can always look at different people, I think, for, for different attributes that you admire. And so that's what I've been lucky enough to do, despite not having, you know, one long-term mentor. And I think, yeah, listening to podcasts like this one or, or others, um, so much information out there, I think, is is also a way of, of getting mentorship in, informally, I guess. I couldn't agree more, Cleo. I'm a bit biased on that one, but uh, thanks for the shout out of 40 Minute Mentor. <laughs> it is one of the reasons we set the podcast up to, to give mentorship to lots of people. So that's, um, that's great that you see that as well. Is there one person that if you could be mentored by that you'd like to be? Well, there's so many, it's really hard to think of one. Yeah, it is, that's a tough, it's a tough question. No, that's cool. Given all the success you've had, I'd be interested to know, what do you want to be remembered for at the end of your career? Yeah, I would look at everything as a continuous journey. So not necessarily label things as, as success as such, but I always look at the journey as one of personal growth and discovery and, and learning. And that's what really makes it fun. I'd love to be remembered as having been part of building something that is once in a generation that is amazing. And I'm pretty agnostic as to whether it's a an operating company or if it's a venture capital fund. But the key, I think, is is really, you know, 
building something that contributes to to our communities meaningfully. And I also want to be remembered as someone who's been helpful. I think be it partners, friends, entrepreneurs, team members. I think just being able to use what I discover along the way to to benefit others and bring value to others. That's a great answer. And as somebody that has benefited from your wisdom and uh, kindness over the years, I, I, I can certainly say you're doing that in spades. So uh, thank you for your support. You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Cleo, for any listeners that might be thinking about a, a switch, maybe into VC, what, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Yeah, so similar to what I said earlier, maybe just two things. I think start by angel investing. I think learn by doing regardless of your check size and start developing and refining your own mental framework and how you look at companies, figure out what you like, what you don't like, and, and more importantly, why, and practice making those decisions right, with real money behind them and, and actually feel it out. Uh, secondly, think, yeah, meet people who are in the role and understand what it's like or read up about it you know, and just find out more because you know, the day-to-day of the job is very different from operating or probably quite different from any role that you find outside. So understand what's good about it, but more importantly, understand the bad parts, the ugly parts or, or the difficult parts and just ch- start projecting yourself you know, in the role and think about how you need to adjust and see you know, whether that's, that's something you're really sure you like. And, and that also helps you in, in your conversations with, with funds going forward. Thank you so much, Cleo. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for sharing your story and some fantastic mentorship. Really appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you, James, again for having me. It's been really fun. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.